Yes, you are listening to Law and Gospel. I'm Pastor Tom Baker on this Wednesday, January the 9th in the year of our Lord, 2019. And it is the first Bible study in 2019 for congregations. I'm working right now with four and sometimes more congregations per week doing worship services, Bible studies, and I just can't get to the many congregations that don't have pastors right now asking if I could drop in, and I can during the week. In the evenings, if you want me to uh, be there to do a seminar or something, don't hesitate to email me at lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. But on these Wednesdays, we're encouraging congregations to kind of get a Bible class together at 9.30 in the morning central time because I am going to be going through a text in the various Wednesdays where you listen for the first half hour and then you talk about it among yourselves during the second half hour when I go off the air. You may also be able to email me if you have any questions and I'll answer any questions I get the following Wednesday while you're gathered together. Now, if Wednesday morning isn't possible at 9.30, This is archived, so you can have it Wednesday night or Tuesday afternoon or whenever and just go to the archive section and get for that particular week. Uh, Today we're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 3, and we're doing it for a particular purpose. One of the problems with law and gospel many people think about is that the Old Testament is law, And the New Testament is gospel. Uh, The first thing I want to say about that, and I've already mentioned this, is the word Old Testament, the phrase, is never used in the Bible to refer to the books of the Bible. No, it refers to the covenants or testaments. The Old Covenant, which is found in uh, Exodus 24, and the New Covenant which, of course, is found in Genesis 3. Uh, Did you notice? Both were Old Testament readings. The Old Covenant is based on my promises to follow God's will. The New Covenant is based on the promises of God to take care of our salvation. So, when we get to the New Testament books... We ought not be surprised that there are many references back to the Old Testament books and the promises found therein, as well as much of the information. Why? Because, as the Bible says, many in the Old Testament, when they, even even the prophets, when they wrote what they were looking forward to in the coming of the Messiah, did not really understand everything that they were writing about. Like when David says, the Messiah will be pierced in hands and feet. He wasn't aware of crucifixion at that time, and yet that's what the Holy Spirit moved him, inspired him to write down. So, Paul is making a big point about how Everybody needs the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, Jesus, even Jew and Gentile. So what we're going to take a look is, I'm trying to make the point 
that the Old Testament books were really important for Christians in the New Testament because the New Testament clarified and revealed the full meaning of what the Old Testament passages were saying, all of which were correct. Chapter 3, we're going to look at up through verse 20. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Now, you see, since both Jew and Gentile are saved, one would say, well, the Jew doesn't have any real advantage. But in verse 2 of chapter 3, Paul says, no, the Jew has advantage much in every way. Chiefly to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, why God chose the Jews, his reason was that they were the most stubborn people. Now, why would God choose stubborn people? Because God wants to make it clear that salvation is of him, not because of the chosen people. And when we say the Jews were chosen, we don't mean that they were the chosen ones to be saved. No, they were the chosen ones through whom the message would come that would be salvation for everybody, including Gentiles. And if you don't believe that, you haven't read the book of Jonah. He was sent to a Gentile town, Nineveh. And these are in the Old Testament books. Now, verse 3, well, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, is God not able to save everybody? Well, no, he is able to save everybody, but people reject the message. In fact, we have our first Old Testament quotation in verse 4. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That's from Psalm 51, verse 4. And it's going to be the first of a whole number of passages from the Old Testament that Paul is using as evidence that God is the one who saves. Verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? This is a very important point that Paul is making here. We would not consider God to be unjust when people refuse to believe the message of the gospel and therefore are not saved. If that were true, then you would have to say that parents are unjust when they discipline their children who are disobedient. Now, they're their parents. They give them rules and guidelines, but children, as they will be, will continue to fall away from that message. Verse 7, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still, still judged as a sinner? 
Why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. See, there were people who were saying, boy, those Christians, they keep saying, I'm forgiven all my sins. Therefore, I can turn right around and do anything that I want. I can do any evil, and good will come of it, because the more sinful I am, the more God's grace comes to me. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. We're not to become more sinful in order that we will receive more grace. There's no doubt that as you recognize your sinfulness, you really look outside of yourself for salvation. And then through faith, you come to realize that God does save you. But people who accuse Christians of going ahead on sinning because, and I've heard this in some denominations, they go out on Saturday night and have a sinful time because they feel that on Sunday morning they'll be coming to church and getting forgiven. Now that condemnation of a Christian is a just condemnation because that's not true repentance when you think, well, I'll go ahead and sin, and therefore I'll tell God I'm sorry for it, he'll forgive me, and I can do it next Saturday and Sunday again. No. What then? And now he's going to be talking about Gentiles. Are we better than they? Not at all. Are are the Jews better than the Gentiles? For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, this is not something that Paul just thought about. This is something revealed to him, the proper understanding of the Old Testament. So it begins, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Guess what? That is a summary of Psalms 14, verses 1 to 3. Psalm 53 1 to 3, and Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Now, remember on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was trying to explain to the two disciples who were really depressed because he had been crucified. Ah, yes, they had heard he had risen from the dead, but they weren't that joyous about that, thinking maybe he's coming back to get even with us. At any rate, Jesus quotes the Old Testament again and again and again to show the necessity of his crucifixion. Here, Paul is quoting the Old Testament to show the evidence that we are sinners. There is none who does good, no, not one. And we're not just talking about unbelievers. We're talking about Christians There isn't one Christian in the world who is perfect 
in his good works without being sinful. And I'll tell you why. And we've mentioned this many a time. Is because the old Adam always has sinful motivation in every work that we do. He obviously has sinful motivation when we do a sin because we're looking at our self-interest. But he also has sinful motivation when we do good work. I mean, how many times do you stop at a stop sign because that's the law, but you also saw a policeman over in the parking lot watching whether people are stopping at the stop sign? So why did you stop at the stop sign? Well, the new man stopped because he wants to obey the law of God. The old Adam stopped out of self-interest so he doesn't get a ticket. And from God's point of view, every good work that we do, even when they are fruit of the Holy Spirit, the old Adam never has the proper motivation. Only the new man has. Because the old Adam is the devil within us. And the devil always will show a self-interest reason. So this is really important. If you are talking to somebody who says, well, I'm not that bad a sinner, your task is to therefore go through the commandments of God and show where they sin. I can't still believe how many individuals don't think that thoughts are not sinful. They are sinful. For example, I, I just read um, from a Roman Catholic priest that homosexuality is not a sin if you only think about it. Well, depends what you mean by think about it. If you have a desire to do it and then stop yourself from doing it, that's still a sin, your desire. Desires are not sinless. Now, you can think about it. Jesus thought about all kinds of sins because he accused people of them. But he never fell into sin, even in his desires. So there's not one person who does good, no, not one. Verse 13, Romans 3. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Guess what? That's another quote from the Old Testament. Psalm 5, verse 9. The book of James, when he writes, he makes a big point that the most dangerous part of the body is the tongue. Because it says things that you wish you could take back. I mean, how many parents have said to their children, I wish you had never been born? A child doesn't forget that. And it's really hard to take that back. So every parent either does, says, maybe thinks something that they wish they wouldn't. Because our throat is an open tomb because of our tongues that have practiced deceit. In fact, the poison of Asps, A-S-P-S, is under their lips. Guess what? Psalm 140, verse 3. An asp is a very poisonous snake. And poison comes from under our lips, namely as we speak that. 
And it's not only what we say about others, but verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Guess what? Psalm 10, verse 7. You see, the Old Testament is not old in the sense when you might say, well, I used to have some people, but they're old friends. And that gives the impression they're not friends anymore. That's not what old means in Old Testament. Old Testament, when we use it, simply means of age. The Old Testament came before the New Testament was written. But both the Old and the New Testaments are accurate wills of God. There's nothing in the Old Testament that God says which is not true. And therefore, our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That cursing, you may use the name of God in vain, but even when you don't use the name of God, you can be bitter. For example, things don't go the way you wish, and you mutter under your breath, oh, that's terrible. That, that's actually an accusation against God. God, who is watching every moment of your life, working all things to your good, never leaving you nor forsaking you, how can we imagine that something is going to happen to us that he is unaware of? And therefore, we become bitter before God. I mean, there are people who have left the church because God hasn't fit in their preconceived notions. And it even gets worse, 15 and following. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace, they have not known. Well, guess what? Old Testament verse again. Isaiah 59, verse 7 and 8. You see, if you haven't known the way of peace then it's really going to be hard for you to be at peace with others because God the Father came to peace with you when you did not deserve it. And that's how you're going to think. I'm not going to be at peace with them. They haven't apologized sufficiently. They haven't told me they're sorry. I'm not going to forgive them. Even though Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, referring to the people who put him on the cross, for they know not what they are doing. So the way of peace they have not known, and and that once more, as I said, is from Isaiah chapter 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Psalm 36, verse 1. Now, this may sound strange. Why would you want a fear of God before the eyes of people? Well, let me ask you this. When you were a child, were you afraid of your parents? And most would say, oh, no, I was not afraid. Well, how about if you did something wrong? Ooh, ooh, yeah. Then I feared my parents. I feared that they would find out about it and that I would get some kind of a punishment. And so my conscience was not clear. See, this is really important to understand. The fear of God is an important ingredient that a person needs to have in order 
that they come to realize, I can't get rid of that fear. There's no good work I can do to stop the fear of God. And so we need to look outside of ourselves to a Savior who has come. Now, this program is called Law and Gospel. And so far, what we've been looking at in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul is underscoring the use of law to show that there's no distinction between Gentiles and Jews. For all have sinned, and condemnation would be just. And we are all under sin. What does that mean, to be under sin? Well, it's kind of like being under the thumb of someone. Because sin says, in the day that you sin, death is the result. So being under sin means you're in captivity to sin. You're imprisoned by sin. And he explains that even further. We'll take a look at the last two verses of this passage. Now we know that whatever the law says, it it doesn't go on to say, it says to those who want to know what to do in order to be saved. (laughs) No, it doesn't say that at all. It says to those who are under the law, And every person is under the curse of the law. For what purpose that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God? So Jesus is from out of this world, became a human being. And so when it says there's nobody who understands, none who does good, it, of course, exempts Jesus from that category because he's not part of the world. He became into the world, came into the world through his incarnation. But the law is given, and this is what we call the second use of the law, so that people will stop boasting of their works as a means of getting to heaven. We're kind of going through the first thesis of Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. The law is very salutary, but it can also prevent someone from being saved. Let's see, how does that make any sense? Well, it is salutary if it's used properly. For example, a pan that you put on top of a stove is very salutary. You don't have to hold the meat in your hands and put them over the burner. You can put them in a pan. But if you use the pan to hit somebody in the head, then that's not the purpose. So also the deeds or the law is very salutary, but if you use it for a wrong purpose to merit your way to heaven, then it's no good. Why? Look at verse 20. Therefore... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, Paul isn't saying that we cannot obey the law through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are called fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's just that they never can occur prior to your being totally saved. They occur after you are totally saved and proper deeds of the law called fruit of the Holy Spirit, they become our response 
to our new knowledge by faith that God has totally saved us and it's all his work. He gets all the credit. So verse 20 has a good ending. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? The knowledge of how to be saved? No. The knowledge of sin. Law and gospel. Absolutely critical. We preach the law first in order to help somebody come to a realization, "Uh uh-oh, I cannot save myself. And then they hear the gospel when they have fear of God. And God gets all the credit for their salvation. That's the Bible study today from Romans 3, 1 to 20. And we're going to be tomorrow with Wes Reimnitz. You heard a lot about young people leaving the church, going into nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Well, a recent survey by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has some very interesting facts and also some help, not only for congregations, but also for parents. That will be on the next broadcast of Law and Gospel. I'm Tom Baker. God bless. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 930 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.